Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, I'll ask your forgiveness in advance. I'm fighting a little bit of a sore, scratchy throat today. So um, if, as we go, my voice breaks. I don't think this will be a particularly emotional sermon. Uh, it's probably just my throat not playing nicely. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word today, we'll be in Exodus chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. This will likely be one of the shortest passages that we address in a given sermon uh, through this series. So far, we have seen God unleash his anger on Egypt using two plagues, a plague of blood first and a plague of frogs. And with each plague in ancient Egypt, God attacks one of the gods of the Egyptians. He goes directly against them personally, specifically. But he's also sort of snapping his fingers in our faces to try to get our attention, to wake us up to the flaws in our own worldview and our own philosophy of living. So as the Nile flowed with blood, this was two plagues ago, God was destabilizing the Egyptian people's sense of identity, their sense of security, the thing that they found themselves uh, in, their value. And then a couple of days later, about a week later, when they found frogs in their beds, they began to understand that the lives of their children and their families belong not to their god, Heket, but to Yahweh, the living God. In both cases, the king of Egypt, a man called Pharaoh, this is a title that he had, Uh, who was also ultimately the slave master of God's people at this point in history, he turned his back on his opportunity to repent. That's been probably what's felt like background noise to you a little bit, but is one of the most important operative actions in these texts, is each time the plague arrives, God confronts the Pharaoh directly and gives him a chance to change. He has an opportunity to turn around, go a different direction, repent, fall on his face, acknowledge Yahweh, and simply set God's people free, but he won't. His heart is hardened. He is unrepentant. And that hardness of his heart brings us to the third plague, which begins in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 8. We'll begin reading there. Then, or in response to these things, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron, your brother, and say to him, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats, or if you're reading the King James Version, lice, in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff. He struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians, these are the people who work in the court of Pharaoh, his sorcerers, they tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on, not among, on, like on the skin of man and beast both. And then the magicians came to Pharaoh and they said to him, this is the finger of God, talking about the plague of gnats. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So God knew this was going to happen this way. So plague three is gnats, or something like gnats. We don't know for sure. Um, In modern Hebrew, the word used in this story means lice, and that's the reason why some older translations use the word lice. It doesn't really matter what the bug, what the insect is. What's implied, what's communicated in these verses, is that Egypt was consumed by some kind of swarming, biting insect, something that made its home on the bodies of the people. Um, Two summers ago, I took a hike up to a place called Pepper Peak. It's not a super well-known destination. It's kind of on the way to a couple of other larger peaks, but I'm a novice hiker, so halfway is pretty good for me. Um, I went hiking with a friend of mine. This is above Eklutna Lake. It looks down upon Eklutna Lake, and then I think on the other side it looks into some other valley. 
And uh, it was a beautiful day. You guys may remember in 2019, if you were here, we had wildfires on the Kenai Peninsula. And so there was a lot of smoke and a lot of our hikes that summer were hazy and smoky. That wasn't the case this day. For whatever reason, it was beautiful. Instead of smoke hanging in the air, though, we had flies, black biting flies. Like not the kind of flies you find if you turn over an old apple on the counter, the kind of flies that can kill birds, like big that's a real thing. You may not know that. They live in Alaska. Flies can do that if enough of them get together. So I'm not a runner. You may not know that about me. I'll do almost any other kind of exercise. I like to be in good shape. I hate to run. It is misery for me. I don't like it at all. Like I hate running so bad that once in college I signed up for a half marathon. We were, I went to a Christian school and we were doing this thing to raise money for missions. And what I'm about to tell you I'm not proud of. I would not recommend that you do this. The day before I intentionally sprained my ankle so that I would not... I'm serious. The guy who asked me to do it, I cared so much more about hurting his feelings. I didn't want to do that by telling him I'm just not ready to do this and I don't want to. That I like walked across campus, found a ditch, jumped into it on purpose, twisted my ankle, and I was like, can't run, sorry. So don't do that. That's not good, but I hate running. That's what I'm telling you. I don't want to do it. I would rather do other things that don't make sense instead of run. The flies were so thick that day on our hike down. I mean, I was exhausted. This is like a 12-hour hike for me. We're coming down, soaking wet with sweat, out of water, out of food, ready to get to the car and get home, take a bath and go to bed. The best part of hiking is when you get home. Um, and we walk through this cloud of flies that are so thick that they begin to crawl into my ears. I'm breathing deeply. They're trying to go into my nose, into my mouth. This is pre-COVID, so we didn't all have a mask on us all the time. So we're like trying to cover up whatever orifices we can, and I ran. I'm telling you, I just booked it down this mountain several miles as fast as I could, stumbling, almost falling, to get away from the flies. So gnats don't sound that bad until you imagine them covering every exposed surface of your body. When you're awake, when you're asleep. It's not like Pharaoh rolled out a national relief plan where he sent everybody a set of mosquito netting in their home. This is like a constant, a legitimate plague. Yeah, frogs are bad, but only so many frogs can get on your body at one time, and they're pretty easy to find, and you can shake them off. These things were like digging into the flesh of these people, bothering them constantly in every way. It's no wonder to me that the magicians couldn't produce this. They probably couldn't even focus long enough to conjure up whatever dark magic it was that they used. What I'm trying to communicate to you is that when the Bible tells you that all of the dust of the earth became gnats, it is communicating an overwhelming amount of them, an overwhelming number, a huge, massive, life-altering experience of being consumed by something. Now, why would God do this? Why does he go after the dust of the earth? Each week, we've tried to identify the specific Egyptian God whom our God, Yahweh, is doing battle with. In this instance... To the best of my ability and understanding, we're dealing with a god named Geb, G-E-B, Geb. Geb is the god of the earth, of the actual literal soil, the ground. And so when Yahweh commandeers the dust and turns it into swarming, biting insects, what he is communicating is that the earth does not belong to Geb, it belongs to Yahweh. That is his intention. Geb is a god of place. He's a god of dwelling. Within Egyptian mythology, the whole earth belonged to Geb, and it was only by his good graces that the people of Egypt were allowed to settle along the Nile and build their civilization. In the United States, we sometimes like to say, God bless America. It would have been common for the Egyptians to say, Geb bless Egypt. The same similar idea of some deity handing a piece of the face of the earth to a group of people and telling them, go, make your kingdom, build your place here on this earth. 
by making an enemy for Egypt of the dust of the earth, God was communicating to the Egyptians that they were at best guests on his earth, a planet that belongs only to him. So for you and I, the idol that is in the crosshairs of God today, the thing that I believe he intends to take down in our own lives, is our sense of place or dwelling, our idea, our philosophy of ownership of where we live our lives. And so as we see stinging, biting bugs crawl all over the bodies of the Egyptians, like God has done every week previously, he is snapping his fingers in our face and saying, look, look at me, look at me, see this, open your eyes to your own idolatry. Because you live in the same world that I do, and our society, especially in the Western world where so much of our identity is based on how much money we have, our society values ownership, and we bind our identities to our place. Our favorite sports teams are an example of this. Very likely, the teams that you like are because you lived in a certain place, a certain geographic region. Our culinary traditions are representative of where we come from. Even our spoken accents, the way that we pronounce words in the same shared English language communicate where we have been and probably where we still consider to be home in our hearts, in our minds. Um, I love, since I've lived in Alaska, to post beautiful things I see, just nature, hikes I'm on, the sunrise, things like that. And one of my favorite things to do is to caption those on Instagram or whatever by telling people they should move to Alaska. I have a lot of friends that live a lot of other places and they kind of think Alaska is just a big glacier. And a lot of it is, but the place where I live is not. It's beautiful. I like it here. Well, every time I caption move to Alaska, one of you guys usually will message me and say, don't say that. We have enough people here. <laughs> You're laughing. You know this. Yes, this is a part of our culture. We agree. It's in our DNA that we think there's enough people. We have literally by far the largest piece of land in these United States, and we have enough people. Nobody else needs to come. We don't want your litter. We don't want your bad politics, right? We all have a reason. We dig our heels in in different, different, different ways, different places. But we believe that this is our place, and we want to keep it to ourselves. And this is not true just for the state that we live in. This sense of place becomes an idol to us when we believe that whatever it is, our, our home, our, our land, that it's only for us or the people who we think of are like us. We may not worship the literal dust of the earth like the Egyptians did, but many of us do place religious significance on the mountains, on the wide open spaces, on our sense of wild and free dominion over land that, if I can shoot you straight, doesn't actually belong to any of us. Most of us feel a sense of entitlement. We feel that we maybe have the right to do what we want on our own land, in our own homes. And if you don't believe me, then I'll have a couple questions to ask you. Consider these things. Why do people behave so much worse at home than they do in public? What is it about driving into your own driveway that makes you feel like you have the right, like you are entitled to unload the stress of your day onto the people who share a roof with you? Let's zoom out a little bit from that. Why do we even have to have a category of mistreatment of other people called domestic abuse? Domestic implying it happens in a domicile, in a home. Like we, we are, our culture has already adapted to this idea. What I'm afraid of is that it's possible that you are numb to this, that you may not be aware that this is a problem from God's perspective. Our selfishness is never stronger than when we are at home. And on a societal scale, if you just consider conflict, every war I've ever heard of was predicated on the idea, at least in part, of ownership of place. Who gets to have the land? Who gets to have the resources? Who gets to claim this mountain or this river or that lake as their own? Jesus has a better way for us. 
Jesus taught in Matthew 25, Luke 14, and Mark chapter 6 about a philosophy of selflessness that extends to what we own, which includes our own place on the surface of this earth. The Greek word that is used is philoxenia, from two words, philo meaning love. You've heard of the city of Philadelphia. We call that the city of brotherly love because that's where the root philos comes into play and tells us about love. And then xeno means stranger or alien, literally. The Bible uses the idea of an alien. They weren't so into aliens being from other planets. To their mindset, aliens just came from across the border of whatever country they lived in. Your Bible translates the word philoxenia into English as hospitality. And I'm afraid that hospitality feels like a bit of a softball to some of us. It doesn't quite land with the gravity that I believe our Lord and Savior intends for it to. The God of the universe, when he speaks about love of stranger, that slaps a little harder to me than just hospitality, which in my mind looks like bringing a tray of cookies to the new neighbors next door. I'm not saying that's wrong or sinful to do that, but there is an attitude and posture of openness to this that is responsive to the way that God has loved us, strangers to him, that's a little deeper and maybe a little harder and maybe a little more holistic than we're used to. Hospitality literally means love of strangers. So I'll ask you, what makes a person a stranger? It's the idea that they're not from here. Here being our place, where we are. Our sense of place, probably for many of us, our idol of place. This defines who is of us. It defines who is our neighbor. It defines who is not of us. And Jesus knows our hearts. He understands that most of us don't really like opening our homes or our personal spaces up to people who we don't know. Some of us have learned to love this. We've done it enough times, we've seen it to be beneficial, and it's okay with us to do. But people who are strange or alien, or to use the Greek word, xeno to us, we struggle to connect with them. We struggle to want to connect with them. And this is not exclusively a modern problem. If you think back to Egypt, I want to try to connect the dots for you here. Why does God need to teach the Egyptians about hospitality, about philoxenia, love of stranger? Why would their worship of Geb, who they see as the giver of their land, the one who upholds their geographic sovereignty, you could argue their sense of manifest destiny, why does this offend Yahweh, the living God? Because their idolatry of place blinded them to the strangers in their midst. Who are the strangers in the book of Exodus? The people of God, the Israelites. God sent the plague of gnats to Egypt on behalf of the one and a half million Israelites who were strangers in the Egyptians' land who desperately needed love of stranger hospitality, but were instead oppressed, forced to the margins, used as labor, and ultimately dehumanized. And these are the same modern threats of our society's idol of place. The opposite of hospitality or xenophilia is xenophobia, and that is a word you may have heard used before. A nationalistic understanding of self that demands that we protect what we have from people whose only real difference between themselves and us is that their mothers birthed them on foreign soil. But we feel that that's a sufficient reason to play defense against those human beings equally created in God's image. Our temptation to demonize the immigrant, to demonize the refugee, to close our homes off to those who are not like us. I'll ask you this, how many of us love to throw dinner parties for people who look like us, who understand all of our cultural references, who agree with our politics? I'll say this to you, it doesn't matter if your homogenous dinner guests are new in town, they may still not be strangers to you. And I would argue that this is not love of stranger as much as it's just a corporate version of love of self. So for us, if this banner behind me is true, if it is all about Jesus and it's not about other things, then our sense of place must be centered on Jesus. He's the remedy to this problem. 
One principle of our vision at True North is to show mercy in the same way that Jesus did. God is willing to lovingly kick down the door to your home, the door to your closet, the door to your bank account, and then he'll turn around and he'll invite a stranger to follow him inside. It is only by seeing Jesus as our greatest love, as our most trusted friend, as our safest place, that we can embrace his practice of welcoming the poor and the alone and the alienated. And that is my treatment of the idol for today, that the rest of our time this morning is going to be given over to a theme, to a concept that's emerged three or four times as we've worked through the book of Exodus, and we're going to deal with it today. I want you to look back at Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I hope that you noticed the magician's evaluation of the plague of gnats. Their appraisal is that this is God's hand at work. Now, the ESV, the version that most of you are probably reading, the translation of God there, I think, is actually pretty generous. The magicians are not using God's name. They're not saying Yahweh, otherwise your English translation would read the Lord, as we've seen for several weeks. They're using the word Elohim, which is just a broad Hebrew word that can mean our God, another God, a spiritual power, a whole pantheon of little g gods. I don't actually think that the magicians are acknowledging the presence of Yahweh here. This, to me, is not an admission of worship or submission to the God of the Hebrews. Otherwise, why would God need seven more plagues after the, this one? What I believe these magicians are doing is probably communicating more about their magic than they are about Yahweh himself. What's implied in their recognition that, quote, the gods are showing themselves, showing their hands, showing their finger is that they believe that the source of anything miraculous must be some broad pantheon of powers. Now, we get that. We've been digging into the ideas of Egyptian gods every week, so you're maybe thinking to yourself, this is a little bit redundant. What I want to do for you is just quickly travel through the Bible and give you some reference points on God's perspective of what's happening at a spiritual level when people, even people like you and I, worship idols. When we give up parts of ourselves, parts of our lives, parts of our psyche to concepts that are not Christ-glorifying, what is actually happening? There is a spiritual exchange in play that I think some of us, depending on what Christian tradition we grew up in, maybe don't believe in. Maybe nobody's ever told you this before. Now, if you're like me and you read this initially, it's plausible to assume that the magicians of Egypt were just doing tricks. Perhaps by some combination of their study of physics Sleight of hand, like street magic, pick a card and I'll tell you what it is, and theatrics, maybe they're able to prevent, excuse me, to produce some kind of convincing reproduction of, of Aaron's staff. This is the first miracle that God does that they replicate in chapter 7 of Exodus, or the water becoming blood, or the frogs themselves. But the reality of the story that scripture is telling is that the magicians of Egypt were not doing tricks. This is not stage magic. They were, with the allegiance of their lives and by being willing to forfeit the eternal value of their souls, they were bargaining and negotiating with very real powers of spiritual darkness. Why would they do that? Because they gained power from that. They gained influence from that. They were able to generate among the Egyptians a hyper-loyal religious following to this cult of gods. The magicians and sorcerers of Egypt were empowered by demonic beings. And the worship of the people of Egypt was the currency paid between the magicians and, of Egypt and the dark powers that they served. Worship is what powers of darkness have always wanted more than anything else. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church, he communicated about the coming of the day of Christ is what he would call it. We would call that judgment day when 
God is done with time, he settles all the debts of all people, and then we enter into a new heaven and a new earth. On the way to that happening, the Apostle Paul sees that there will come a person. You may have heard this person referred to as the Antichrist. This is not a sermon on the Antichrist. I'm not going to go any further down that trail today than just mentioning that that's the context of this. The operative part of the verses I'm about to read to you are the presence and role of the Satan, the enemy of God. So let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, The coming of the lawless one, this is what we would call the Antichrist, is by, is according to the power of Satan, with all power, with all false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. False signs and wonders. That's Exodus 7 and 8. This has always been the domain of God's enemy. He understands how fickle we are. We like a flash in the pan. We like to be like, shown sort of like a peek behind the supernatural curtain. We go, ooh, oh, oh. we buy tickets. We, we line up outside the doors because we want to experience something like this. Our lust for that sometimes leads us into the arms of people and ultimately powers that want nothing more than to tear us away from allegiance to God. The New Testament church knew this. Old Testament Israel experienced it. But I don't think many of us expect this in our lives. I think it's because, like most of the supernatural parts of our faith, we are wildly out of touch with the unseen reality of the spiritual realm and the conflict of the powers of evil against Yahweh and his forces of good. God is clear in more than just this one spot in Scripture that the worship of false gods is actually the worship of what you and I would call demons. I want to give you just two references. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is a long passage detailing the story of the people of Israel. The beginning of this passage, there's going to be a word you've probably never seen before, Jeshurun. It's just a nickname for Israel. So when we read this passage, we're talking about God's people, his nation, the people of Israel. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 15. He says, but Israel, or Jeshurun, grew fat, and in growing fat, kicked. You grew fat, you grew stout, you grew sleek. He's communicating you were successful, and therefore rebellion came. Then he, he's using a singular pronoun to describe a nation of people, he forsook God, the God who made him, and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And then in 1 Corinthians, again, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says this in chapter 10. I imply you, Corinthians, that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Okay, Paul, sign me up for that. I don't want to do that either. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? When the Bible uses the word demon, what it's talking about is an angel, and that's another word with loaded meaning. An angel is not a precious moments baby with no clothes on. An angel is a messenger of God. It's an entity, a spiritual being created by God separate from humanity. There's probably way more going on in the angelic than any of us know, but the way the Bible reveals just a little bit is that these are beings sent on behalf of God to either do his work or communicate his will. So the word angelos in Greek, where we get angel, just means messenger, and it meant messenger way before the New Testament was written. So when you read angel, you don't always have to visualize like Cupid shooting air, heart-shaped arrows at people. Just, it's just a, a person speaking, like a, a being speaking is what I mean. 
A demon, then, would be an entity created by God to either do his will or communicate his will that's decided they're going to do something else. A very similar kind of rebellion to what you and I experience every day, a desire to believe the lie that we know better than God and we can take better care of ourselves than God can. These demons, these fallen angels, and when we say fallen, we don't necessarily mean literally fell out of the sky. We mean that they've removed themselves from the good and right will of God. They have one goal now. It is to rip your eyes, the eyes of your soul, away from Christ in any way possible. To fool you into believing a false gospel, to fool you into following your senses, the sensual elements of your life, your lusts, your cravings, your appetites, to make you deeply angry or deeply bitter at people who are also made in the image of God, at dividing the church on tiny little secondary or tertiary theological issues. Division is the work of God's enemies because unity is the work of God. God who is reconciling, God who is bringing all things back under the control and lordship of Jesus. The demons want nothing worse than to get in the way of that. And I'll tell you the person they hate the most, it's not just God the Father, it's Christ the Son. Because God is a good judge, and if a demon can convince you to do wrong, then you'll be judged and you'll join those demons in eternal torment. But it's only through Christ that redemption can happen, and demons hate redemption. Because redemption is what happens when demons spend all of their time trying to tempt and mislead people. Those people follow through on those sinful and wicked acts, and then Jesus forgives them anyway. They hate that. They can't handle it. And so the presence of the demonic in our lives, though it might look sometimes like a movie that you've seen, The Exorcist, something like that, I think there's certainly places and times where those are realities. In the West, where we're highly skeptical, the demonic makes itself known in systems. The demonic makes itself known in theories. The demonic makes itself known in the way that we view our shared collective past, our unwillingness to deal with realities that are evidenced and obvious but are offensive to us or we don't like or they step on our toes. These are the ways that these things rise to the surface in the West. Demons reward their worshipers with physical, earthly, sensational things, experiences of pleasure, positions of power, the ability to conceal their own wickedness and their own selfish nature. If you've seen any pastor whom you cared about fall from grace in the last 10 years, that is evidence, not of demon possession, I'm not trying to preach about that today, but of the influence of the demonic, the influence of wickedness. That a man or woman who is supposed to represent Christ would find a way to hide some of the deepest and worst examples of sin from people that are supposed to be like co-laborers in the kingdom of God with them is an example of the demonic. It's the exaltation of human beings. And what that proves to us when a person is able to live that way is that the demonic has achieved its goal, that it's convinced a person that they are either equal with God or better than him or they don't need him at all. The highest form of human elevation is the pinnacle of demonic achievement. So I have a principle for you to consider as you maybe open your mind today for the first time to the possibility of demonic work around you. This is something that I think will just help you to parse this out and think through. The demonic in the ordinary prompts the demonic in the extraordinary. It's a principle that I want you to grasp. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. And then I want to just speak briefly to you about the concept of undercurrents and eruptions. This helps me, okay? So, if we see the presence of the demonic in systems, in culture, in society, in what I would call undercurrents, the kinds of things that I listed on this slide, national policy, public opinion, common practice, cultural norms, when those things become normal, when we embrace, embrace and adopt a spirit of division, a spirit of um, dehumanization of other people, then we ought not be surprised when suddenly that erupts from below the surface and becomes a crisis in certain moments. This can happen when either God intervenes or an oppressed group of people eventually rebel. 
When a society or civilization or culture has embraced the exaltation of humanity among those who are powerful and the subordination of humanity or the imago Dei of the weak, that starts in the collective attitude, worldview, and policies of that people. If you think back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh had beef with the Israelites. He was scared of them. He was nervous about what they would do to him. And so he began to slowly introduce the idea that they were a threat to his people. Over time, his people embraced that concept to the point that he was able to decree to speak into national policy that they were a threat. It went from a perspective, an emotion, a fear, to a rule of law. And this is how it always works. Think of any example from human history. Genghis Khan's rape and conquest of the entire Asian continent. The Roman Catholic Crusades, the Holocaust. These are examples of groups of people with poor leadership listening to the rhetoric and propaganda of those leaders long enough that their hearts shift. And things that would have felt a generation or two ago completely reprehensible and impossible become normal, and these everyday people participate willingly. This is what happened in Egypt. It's what happens in many parts of human history. If we're not careful, it will happen again to us. I want to highlight one specific example from the history of our own country. Excuse me. 100 years and seven days ago, May 30th, 1921, Dick Rowland, a black man and a shoe shiner in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was accused of assault by a white woman. He was arrested and he was taken to the city jail to be held until he could have a trial. A local newspaper published an article that afternoon that he was to be lynched by the majority white citizens of Tulsa and by midnight that night, a mob of over 1,000 white men was waiting outside the jail for the sheriff to hand Dick over to them that they might lynch him. In response to this, carloads of armed black men drove from the Greenwood district of Tulsa over to the jail in case the lynch mob should try to take Dick. They thought this is our chance to stand up for ourselves and to protect a man who's obviously not going to receive justice here. And as you would expect, tensions rose until around... Two or three in the morning, somebody fired a shot in the air, and what we now call the Tulsa Race Massacre began. For 16 hours, 16 hours, armed white men assaulted the several-block Greenwood District, which we now know today as Black Wall Street. 1,200 homes were burned. Many were burned to the ground from private aircraft, which were used for bombing runs of flaming turpentine-soaked rags that were dropped out of these airplanes onto people's homes while they were still inside. When firefighters from Tulsa and surrounding cities attempted to respond, they were kept out of the black neighborhoods by groups of armed white men who wanted Greenwood to burn to the ground. In all, 10,000 black people lost their homes and the equivalent of $32 million in modern money in damage and destruction was done. And this was an eruption that was prompted by the demonic in the mundane. The demonic presence of Jim Crow laws requiring black men and women to build their own separate economic foundation, totally outside of the white part of town. And then, here comes the idol of place, when the Greenwood district, the black part of town, outpaced the white part of town economically, the idol of place among the white citizens caused an eruption of violence and oppression. They could not handle the idea that people who were considered to be other from them had more than they did. The long, slow dehumanization of black people in America gave birth to violence that to many people was totally justifiable at the time. And love of self, instead of love of stranger, prompted murder of stranger. 
and everybody felt pretty good about it. And the week after the massacre, several ministers, ministers, Christian ministers, leaders of churches in Tulsa were interviewed. And I'd like to read you the response of a man named J.W. Abel, who was the pastor of the First United Methodist Church of Tulsa. And I need to warn you that his words are horrifying in every sense of the word. But this is real, and it happened, and we need to know what can happen to us when we bow down to the idol of place. Reverend Abel said this. We must not make a martyr of the Negro, even though many hundreds of them have suffered innocently. There are all too many of the so-called leaders of the Negro race who habitually discredit the white race as to our willingness to give the Negro a chance under all the rights to American citizenship. What other nation in all human history has done as much as the white race has done for the race which but a brief half century ago emerged from slavery? A race which even in slavery was a thousand times better off than the black princes who ruled their race in Africa. We tax ourselves to educate him. We help him to build churches. We are careful to keep him supplied with work at a good wage and trust him with a ballot. And all we ask of him is to behave himself and to prove himself worthy of our trust. This is heartbreaking to me because this man knows the truth. You can hear it in his words. His opening line, even though many hundreds of them have suffered innocently, he sees the reality. He's not blind to it. He's found a way to manipulate it and to justify it to fit his own idols, his own preference, his own self. This man claimed Christ as his Lord. This is one of a handful of these kinds of quotes that I found this week. This man stood in a pulpit every Sunday and he taught the Bible to men and women like you and me. And when faced with the choice between exalting himself, his race, his place, that or the humility to admit that simply what he had witnessed was an atrocity. We have no evidence that he even participated. He has no skin in the game, but he chose himself. I want you to hear me when I say to you that we as church people, we as people who have trusted Christ are not automatically immune to idolatry in any form. We cannot ignore our past. We cannot fool ourselves into thinking that our own hearts are somehow less susceptible to corruption and darkness than our ancestors were. We have not advanced as a civilization to the point where we don't do wrong anymore. And past this point, just think about how the demonic has lodged itself in the fabric of our cultural moment. Pornography is a national epidemic that has been prompted by the undercurrent of the sexualization of all things. The sexualization of cars, the sexualization of cigarettes, of TV shows, of deodorant, of children. It is everywhere. Nothing is gone untouched by people who want to sell you a thing by way of sex. 
Corruption of international church leaders. Let's bring it home into this room today. Prompted by the undercurrent of the celebrity pastor phenomenon or zero accountability or an us versus them church dynamic. We encourage people to pick tribes within Christianity and that is demonic church. It is not of God to divide his people further. It only serves God's enemies. The rubber meets the road for us in our unity or our lack thereof, our willingness to divide Jesus' body is an evidence of our sense of place. Even if that idol is an idol of place of theology or place of doctrine, we have to be so careful that we rally around what is primary and only what is primary. This week alone, I have seen people who claim Christ celebrate division in the church online. Celebrate verbal violence against people of other Christian tribes and traditions that are different from their own even celebrate the downfall of their political opponents who, newsflash, claim the same Jesus that they do. So what do we do? What can we do when faced with real, powerful, demonic influence? Because this is the world that we live in. I'll just tell you what the Apostle Paul says. I don't have time to read it to you today. You can read it on your own. But in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul recommends the same weapons that Jesus used. Jesus is our example. The truth, Paul says, put it on, wear it. Christ's righteousness that's been given to you and purchased for you, put it on, wear it. A posture braced for action, based upon a gospel of peace, not violence. Faith that defends us from the accusations and questions of the enemy. God's word, meditated upon, memorized, embraced, internalized, connected to the inner life that we all have. Prayer and communion and conversation with Yahweh, who is the living God, who is the same God who tears down the idols of Egypt and attacks demons alike. We need Jesus. We don't need to be people who talk about Jesus. We need to be satellites that revolve around Jesus. That should be the trajectory of our lives. We need Jesus to show himself to be worth more to us than our homes, than our homeland, than any of our rights that we have. So may we follow Jesus, church. That is my charge to you. That is my prayer for you. May we follow Jesus and not the idol of place. May we be a people who love the stranger in the same way that Jesus has loved us. I want to pray for you. Father, we are wicked. I don't mean that to be dramatic. I mean that there is within us the ability, given the right set of circumstances and enough people behind us saying, yeah, yeah, that's right, go that way, for us to retrace the steps of history again and again and again. Atrocity, abuse, oppression, the dehumanization of people who are made in your image. Would you attack that in us, God? Would you change us such that it would never even enter into our minds to justify the murder of innocent people by saying, well, we're doing a lot for them in government right now. We're really going out on a limb to try to give them a shot at things. They have the same chance that we do. Is that love, God? I don't think so. May you break down our selfishness. May you break down our cultural idols. May you make your church holy in the truest sense of the word, God, separate, apart from the world. As Paul writes in Philippians, God, may we be a light among a crooked and wicked generation. We understand today that that looks like and requires radical living, not just radical believing. 
And so I pray that you would build that in us, God, that you would change us, that you would shape us, that you would make us like Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.